0: So, we are um, in the middle of this series, kind of week six, I think, is where we are in this called to life series, and it's kind of fitting, you know, we're, we're in this place, as we kind of pray through these things, we're in this place where we're, we're dealing with some really challenging texts, some things in scripture that are not hard to reconcile, but just hard to really live. They're actually not that hard to understand, they're just hard to live out in practice, and they're very practical things. And so Peter is shifting from this kind of bigger teaching on life that follows Jesus to some very specific contextual things, like submitting to authorities, submitting under slavery, submitting in terms of marriage, very, like, not pie in the sky kind of things in theory, but like real concrete stuff. And so it's a really powerful piece of text, but it's challenging because we don't really want to live that way, and when we run into things that we don't like in Scripture because we don't want to live that way, we tend to skip them. We tend to move past them. We tend to pretend they're not there, not because we don't like them, but because we don't really want to deal with their reality, and so I always don't think that's a lot of fun, and so I like to sort of dive into it and see why God is saying the things that he's saying, um, and so that's kind of what we did last week, right? We got in the middle of all this. Um, the middle of our, this sort of Call to Life series, and we, we kind of got in the middle of this piece of text, and we just said, what is God really saying? And we talked about submission. And submission, as I mentioned earlier during the announcement time, a submission is one of these words that, for a lot of us, it doesn't sit real well, all right? It kind of makes us squirm a little bit, because we've tied a lot of our cultural ideas to this thing called submission. And we tend to think submission is this sort of weakness or defeatism or this kind of, like, I just have to kind of give in and quit, But that's not really what biblical submission is at all. Biblical submission is really the idea of sort of this faithful and fearless trust in the Lord. So I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to be fearless as I place all the things that I know God is calling me to in his hands. And I'm going to remove my responsibility from making sure that I get my way. And I'm going to trust and submit to the Lord by faithfully believing in who he is and being fearless in my trust for him. So submission at its core is really fearlessly trusting Jesus. It's believing that God is big enough to do the things that he says he'll do. We're going to talk about this in the context of marriage as well. This idea of mutual submission and fearlessly trusting the Lord as we submit first and foremost to him and then to the people he has placed in our life is a way of really honoring the Lord. Well, we got to this place last week where we were talking about governments and the challenge there and and what it was like for these new believers, right? And I kind of gave you a few things that we need to remember as we kind of approach this text because Peter's talking very specifically to a very specific group of people and that context biblically is really important. We've got to understand that there's this, he's writing to this scattered group of believers all over Asia Minor, right? So this kind of believers that are in pockets in these little cities. There are not a lot of them, right? We talked about persecution being real. We talked about it not being a Christian culture because you are one or two or three or five or ten, maybe at the most, believers in your area, most likely your whole family. They weren't believers. There wasn't a network of people. There wasn't a Mardell's you could run to and like buy a series on how to live under an oppressive government. Like there's none of those things. I don't think that's at Mardell's probably now. But... Yeah, no, it's not going to be there. But there's not, you couldn't run to that desk for help or whatever. Like, you're trying to navigate following Christ. And you did it in the context of the community that you had. And it was small and it was intense and it was real. And they gathered together out of necessity, right? And for worship. They gathered together to share life and they gathered together to worship. And so Peter's writing to these pockets of believers all over Asia Minor. And he's writing this incredible call to life, this incredible encouragement letter that says, listen, God has not forgotten you. You have been called and you have been chosen. You have been anointed and appointed by God. You are a holy people. You are strangers in the land that you're in, but you are at home as part of the kingdom of God. Right? All that stuff we talked about in 1 Peter chapter 1. And he has this incredible call to life for them, saying, look, you're not just resigned to live in this area of persecution and struggle. There's actually a purpose for your life. And we've tied that whole series into the idea that every breath and every moment is an opportunity for you and an opportunity to me to find hope and joy and purpose in life. There are no wasted moments in the economy of God. And so Peter's writing to this group of people saying, even though life is hard, and it's oppressive, and it's unjust, and you're struggling under a regime or governments that want to kill you, there's purpose in every moment and breath as a follower of Christ. And we know that oppression to be true because Nero was emperor of Rome, and Nero was the worst. I mean, he was a brutal emperor. For those of you that know your early church history, he put to death thousands upon thousands of Christians in the kind of all kinds of different arenas, but really in the public space, Right? Had them battling lions and gladiatorial rings and literally putting them in places where they would be murdered. He wanted to rid the earth very publicly of this scourge of Christianity because Christians believed in one God. And the Romans believed in a pantheon of gods. So persecution was real and it was, it was suffering and a lot of them were suffering unjustly. And so we talked about how we submit and the idea to that authority Last week. Well, this week, Peter's going to take it up a notch and make us squirm a little bit more as he talks about the idea of slavery. And slavery is a hard one for us because we can't divorce our understanding and our culture today um, from its sort of context to how we see it biblically. They're tied together mentally. So we're just going to have to kind of deal with that a little bit as we use the term and we talk about what Peter is instructing these folks that are enslaved to actually do and how it can be a place where they are honoring God. And a really challenging text, not so much because of what Peter calls them to do, but because the practice behind it is so anti what we might normally think and be led to, to fight our way out, fight for justice, fight for the things that are, that make kind of ourselves right when we're persecuted unjustly, to fight for the me. And we're going to see that Peter actually is going to tell them to do something very different than that, and a way to honor the Lord. So as we prepare our hearts to do that, let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we're going to flip over to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to look at what Peter talks about when he talks about submission in terms to slaves and masters, and what life might look like for those first century Christians. Let's take a moment, let's just pray. Lord, your word is alive It is living and active. It is sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. That is what you tell us your word does. And therefore, God, we trust it because it is you. An encounter with your word is an encounter with you. This is not some random letters, books gathered together that are supposed to inform our life. They are instead the very truth of God poured out so that we might know you and experience you and your word is true. And so God, when we face difficult teaching or things that we might wanna struggle with, it doesn't make your word any less true. It makes us believers have to dig in and find out what you're saying to us. And so Lord, this morning we ask that we would just dig in. That we just dig into your word and we try and understand from its context and more so the principles in which you're pressing and implying on our life. The Lord, as we open your word this morning, teach our hearts. Take a moment and just ask the Lord to teach you something this morning. Whatever it is he wants to speak to you, whatever he wants to whisper to your soul, ask the Lord to do that and give him space to do that. Say, Lord, teach my heart this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you, in front of you, behind you. Even if you don't know them, we do this every week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. So pray that God would move in them, even if you don't know their name. Even if this is your first week with us, just pray for that person and just ask God to teach their hearts. And Lord, we turn our time over to you. We turn our hearts over to you. We ask you to reveal truth to us and teach us. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So we're going to jump right in uh, where we left off last week at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. If you've got your Bible, I want you to uh, flip over there. If not, you can follow along with me. We're going to read down to the end of that chapter. And this is where Peter picks up. Remember, he just finished talking about submission in terms of authorities and governmental structures. And now he it turns his attention to slavery. He says, slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. So right away, when we glance this text at first glance, we can see that Peter is addressing a very specific circumstance and a very specific people group, right? Slaves respect your masters. Now, I've heard it a hundred times in this text of people trying to explain that Peter is not actually writing to slaves, he's writing to those that are more bond servants, like an employee-employer relationship. The problem with that is it's just kind of not true. You kind of have to ignore most of what Peter's saying, including what it says in the Greek, and ignore half the lines in that text to get there. And I don't even really know for what reason. Peter's not speaking to the institution of slavery. He's not making an argument for its good or bad qualities or any of those things. He's not speaking to an ideology. He's speaking directly to Christians who were suffering and who were enslaved. At the time, historically, Nero, and being kind of the way that things are set up, Nero and these other outlying people groups have enslaved literally thousands upon thousands of Christians. And that slavery ran the gamut of how it was structured. Some were enslaved, just like you're thinking. Unjustly, unrightly sold into slavery, had their women or children sold into slavery, and were being harshly abused and mistreated at the hands of their masters and/or captors. Some of those relationships were a working relationship, was like a bond servant. Some of those were working off debts. Some of us were, or some of them were, maybe put into a new land where they had no money or resources in order to get property or something. They gave themselves into a slavery-type situation to where they would work off the debt they had taken on by a landowner or something like that, more like indentured servitude, if you will, and the whole gamut of things in between. But Peter is writing very specifically to a group of people that are enslaved and suffering unjustly. He's writing to a group of Christians, people that have given their life to the Lord that are suffering at the hands of harsh masters. There is really no way around that. Now, the thing about that is that it does not apply to you and I in that context. But there are some real principles that are, here, that are here that we're going to try and take away this morning when we talk about living in injustice. But I want to pick out the things that Peter's saying first to these folks that are suffering at the hands of harsh or unjust slave masters, if you will. And I want to show you how those can apply to how we live with injustice. But it's important to see them because they're sitting right there staring us in the face. And you've got this people group that's suffering unjustly and really sort of terrible things. And Peter's giving them some really powerful instructions on how to live and submit in the context of that authority. So he says essentially this, submit because it really honors the Lord. He says, slaves, submit submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only those who are good and considerate, but to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of the Lord. Some of these folks were in really dire situations. Situations where the people they were serving were really harsh. And they were suffering unjustly. They hadn't done anything to deserve it. In fact, they were acting and living in a correct manner, and yet they were suffering and we would think that what Peter would say to these folks is, do whatever you have to do to get free, fight, punch, claw, fight your way out. But Peter actually has a very different word for them. He says, listen, in your unjust suffering, in your place where you are doing right, he goes, when you suffer in that injustice, it is commendable before the Lord because you are conscious of God. Now, it gives a secret to what it means to suffer there. He uses the word, the idea of being conscious of the Lord, which is being mindfully aware of God. So he says, listen, when you're in these situations, when life is really hard, when you're really struggling with someone in your life, a master in your life who is not treating you justly, how you act matters. And he says it's commendable. In other words, it is honorable or God is giving you honor or it is praiseworthy, right? It is commendable that you conduct yourself in a manner that is right. It honors the Lord. Hard, right? In other words, he's saying, don't fight back. Don't punch back. We see that all the time. He says, but it's commendable and honors the Lord when we submit to those authorities, even those unjust authorities, which is hard, right? It's hard to swallow, but it's there. And I'll show you why it's there in just a moment. But he says, so slaves, submit to the Unjust treatment. It's commendable. In other words, God will honor it. He will find it praiseworthy. He will reward you because it honors him. He goes on to say, we submit because of the example of Christ. He says, look, this is what you were called to. If you suffer for doing good, endure it. It's commendable. This is what you were called to. Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He says, Jesus was the example of how we're to live when we suffer unjustly. Now, we got to remember, Jesus suffered really for two reasons. One, he suffered for you. Jesus went to the cross fully submitting to not only the authority of God, but to the authority of unjust rulers, of a sham, of a trial, of a racking kind of disastrous, outrageous kind of crying of the people to be put into the hands of a Roman authority that would ultimately have him crucified. Jesus submitted not only to the authority of God, but to the authority of those unjust rulers. And he submitted for you and for me. And he did that so that he would bear the weight of sin. So that Jesus would take on the sin of the world, the sin of humanity. That he would take on our sin, exchange his righteousness for our sinfulness. That he would become sin for us so that in him we might be, have the righteousness of God. Jesus submitted for you. Therefore we are alive in Christ and we put our hope and our trust in him because all of our sin has been shifted from us unto Jesus. So Jesus submitted, willingly graciously and perfectly and sinlessly for you but he also submitted it as an example for you this is that part of jesus life that we're called to called to look like called to replicate he gave an example of how to live when life is unjust he gave an example of how to live when we're facing circumstances that are really hard and difficult how we submit to authority, and we don't retaliate, we don't find ways to revenge, and we don't fight back just for the sake of fighting back. Because this honors the Lord, that we don't treat sin for sin or evil for evil. Just because someone did something does not give us the right to do that same thing back. It's what we've taught our children, right? <clears throat> the two wrongs don't make a right kind of thing. And Jesus is this incredibly perfect example of what suffering and submission look like when they go hand in hand. But the last part of that is sort of where, um, where it all gets really interesting, where we've got this sort of honors, honors the Lord, right? We've got this, Jesus is our example, but Jesus is the example because he did something that's really remarkable. It says right there in verse, let's see, verse 24, or verse 23, that when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate, But he suffered and made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So in the middle of all that, what Jesus did was he trusted himself to God. And he knows that God was going to be the ultimate and perfect and right judge. And so he entrusted himself in the middle of unjust circumstances to just say, God, I believe that you know what you're doing. I believe that you're God. And I trust you. And I'm going to walk this road, right? Not my will, but your will be done. That's the sort of image that Jesus puts forward. Trusts himself to the God that will judge. So we've got these sort of overarching principles, right? This idea that suffering like that way, submitting that way honors the Lord, that Jesus gave us this example that he took that unjust suffering sinlessly and flawlessly, and he suffered so that we might know him, and he gave us this incredible example of how we live in the middle of that and he trusted the Father. Right? Those are the, those are the principles, and they're written directly to this group of Christians that's suffering really harsh conditions. Now, the reality is that most of us will never wake up and be in any of that circumstance. I don't think. I would find it incredibly hard to believe if any of us found ourselves under the yoke of slavery this week, or this month, or in your future life, unless you're so traipsing into some other country as a, as a missionary or some kind of situation that might put you in that. Most of us will not be there. So we ask ourselves the question, in the middle of all that, what's the, big, what's the bigger context? What is God trying to teach us about living a life that is in the middle of injustice or difficulty or struggle? So where I spent most of my time this week looking at this text is really there. When What do I do when life isn't fair? When I've been dealt something that's really hard or complicated or that I didn't want, none of, those, none of these people probably wanted the harsh treatment they were getting. What are the bigger principles at play? And if you put these two sections together, this idea of submitting to government submitting to masters, right, it becomes very clear that there's a few things, principles that we're called to really understand. And the first one that we talked a little bit about last week was this idea of living a respectful life. Both in the end of seventeen there and eighteen, Peter brings it back up again. He says this He says, Show proper respect to everyone, love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honor the king. Slaves, submit to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those that are harsh. Whether we like it or not, followers of Christ are called to live a respectful life meaning we're called to give honor and respect to pretty much everyone we come in contact with, even those that are really hard, even those that we really disagree with, even those that are political adversaries, if you will. We are called to give and show respect and live a respectful life. You know, the truth is is that that's really, at times, challenging to do. Because there are some people that act in a certain way that we don't necessarily want to respect. Or they have lost our respect. Or the way that they have acted has uh, basically stripped them of deserving our respect. Because of how they treated us, treated our children, treated our spouses, treated others, acted on social media, whatever it is. We want to pull all that back and say you don't deserve it. But Scripture is really clear that as followers of Christ, we are called to be Respectful, even when treated poorly. Even when someone in your life treats you like trash or like garbage, we are called to live and respond and be respectful. In other words, we're called not to just retaliate, to get in brutal and harsh arguments on Facebook or Twitter with people that we disagree with. When somebody does something horrible to us that we don't get the right, then to retaliate with just venom. We're called to live respectful lives. That when people treat us poorly, we respond with the attitude of Christ. So we, we got that. And the second thing that we see is that at some point in time in your life, you will face injustice. And I don't mean that in the sort of the bigger sense of like giant kind of, I mean just like some point in your life, you're going to be treated in a way you don't deserve. You're going to have a friend that stabs you in the back. You're going to be accused of something you never did. You're going to do something right and you're going to be punished for it. At some place and at some point in your life, you are going to be faced with and live with the reality that life is not fair. Something is, is going to do something to you that is going to really and truly hurt and you did not deserve it. That is an absolute and total truth. If it hasn't happened to you already, multiple times, I promise you it will. Someone is going to ridiculously offend you. And you know what? That is life. And life is not fair. Scripture is full of how we begin to live when treated unjustly, when facing injustice, when you just want somebody else to get what's coming to them. And this is where this passage really begins to take shape for me. Because there have been plenty of times in my life where I felt like I was treated unfairly or unjustly or that I wanted some kind of vengeance for someone just to know that I didn't do whatever it was that is. And if you've ever been married, a lot of your life exists right here. I just want someone else to know that I did not do it that way. I'm being wrongly accused the kids it's their fault somebody just see that i didn't do anything wrong how many of your arguments in marriage have been built around the idea of i didn't do anything wrong and your spouse says yes you breathe that way <laughs> so these principles they apply right there and the three that we looked at really apply there specifically when life was being kind of treating us in this unfair kind of really challenging, kind of unjust way. Think about these principles we, we lifted up, right? So when we're facing injustice, how we react and how we live and how we respond matters. And the first thing that we saw there is that we've got to be mindful of the Lord. So Peter says it's commendable because we are conscious of God. In other words, we are mindfully aware of the Lord. When you are facing struggles, when you've got a boss at work that is just the worst when your school feels oppressive, or when you feel like you've been treated unfairly, when life just shows up in all of its unfairness, the first thing we've got to remember is to be mindfully aware of God. In other words, you are not alone. And I mentioned this the very first week when we talked about our, our kind of journey through, through First Peter, that Peter's really a letter written to remind folks that they're not alone in this. As isolated believers living out in Asia Minor with not a whole lot of other believers, not a whole lot of good things going on, Peter's reminding them they're part of something great and collectively better than just themselves, that you are not alone. And it said it's commendable to remember and be mindful of God. In other words, I'm going to go, God, I know that you are in this with me. I know that I'm not alone in fighting these battles. God, I know that you will fight for me and fight alongside me, that you are my God, that you have not forgotten me or not forsaken me. I am going to be mindfully aware of God and be conscious of God. So the first thing that happens when life gets difficult and unfair and unjust is that we become mindfully aware of God. We need to. We need to push ourselves to go, okay, I'm not alone. God, I believe that you're allowing me to walk through these things. That you are sanctifying my heart. In other words, you are helping me grow closer to you. That you have not left me out here on an island. And that when suffering and hurt or injustice happens in my life, I'm going to be mindfully aware that you are my God. The first thing that we do, though, when life goes that way is we begin to yell, God, where are you? Because we're more concerned with the injustice than we are the presence of God. So we, become, we need to become mindfully aware of God. So we push ourselves to God, I want to I be mindfully aware of you. The second thing that we saw is that we want to follow the example of Christ always. It's really easy to say that out loud, right? It's the WWJD bracelet, do a bumper sticker deal, what would Jesus do? We have all mocked for all of our lives. Problem is, it's just ridiculously biblical. <laughs> as goofy as it sounds, it's just really true. Like, how do I live how Jesus would live. Like when faced with difficulty and injustice or faced with suffering or hurt or pain, like how was the example of Christ and how do I live that way? And he gives some really specific things about Jesus not hurling insults upon those that were unjustly treating him, not fighting back, not trying to get them to get theirs. Jesus didn't spend his time thinking about ways to have vengeance. Vengeance. He didn't just soak it in and go, I'm going to get them back. He didn't plot his perfect comeback line, right? Next time my wife accuses me of this, I'm going to get her with this. I've been storing that one up. That's super biblical. It's really a great idea for a healthy marriage. Store up ideas to retaliate against your spouse. No, none of that's there, right? So was the example of Christ? Well, it's this idea of tolerance and submission ultimately to the Father, knowing that He is always there. How did Jesus treat his enemies? He loved them. He he literally loved them. He loved those that didn't walk like him, look like him, act like him, live like him. He loved those that hurled insults at him. He loved them. So we're mindfully aware, right? We follow the example of Christ. And the third thing we just looked at was we entrust ourselves to the God who judges justly. This is really important because when you're treated unjustly or you're suffering or struggling, justice is not yours to dole out. Revenge and vengeance aren't yours to hand out. As a follower of Christ, all that belongs to the Lord. In fact, Paul's really specific about it. Paul says this in Romans chapter 12. He says, he says Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to eat. Vengeance is the Lord's, right? Justice is the Lord's. Most of us want to see justice happen immediately. We want people to be found out. When they treat us this way, in this sort of hypocritical way, when we're pressed with unjust living, we want the world to know what an awful person that is. And if we could expose them where we can, we will. And that may mean gossip. It may mean doing something online. It may mean whatever. But we are going to make sure that that injustice to me is righted. We're much more concerned with the injustice that happens to ourselves than we are to the injustice that happens in the world. Because I need people to know that that's not me. I didn't do that. So I'm going to fight to make sure my name is clear and clean. That's in everybody's human nature. The challenge is is that what the Lord says is that that belongs to him. That he judges justly. And that we entrust ourselves to him. In other words, I don't take up the mantle of revenge for myself to make sure my name is cleaned. I trust the God who judges all. And I will let God do what God does. And I will feed my enemy and I will give them something to drink. And that is hard. That is really, really hard because it goes against everything in our nature. We want to shun people. We want to push them out. We want to block them. We want to hurt them. We want to hurt their whatever. We want to slash their tires and beat their windows in and spray paint their cars or make sure that people know forever who they are and what they've done. That belongs to the Lord. So as followers of Christ, we follow the example of Jesus and we entrust the God who judges justly. If you're living in some type of unfair injustice today, some struggle where you've been accused of something or you're living in a situation where your boss or whoever it is is just harsh and difficult, right? These are really practical things. Like be mindfully aware of God. Just say, God, I believe you're still with me and I trust you. I'm going to follow the example of Christ and I'm not going to seek revenge and poison my heart with that lie. But I'm going to entrust you and I'm just going to love people even the ones that are really hard. I'm going to feed my enemy and I'm going to give him something to drink and I'm going to entrust that justice is yours. That's really easy to say. But then again, that's the challenge of being a follower of Christ, right? Being able to put the things that we know that God calls us to do into action in our lives. So we've got that really practical side of this. And then the last thing is this really beautiful thing that Peter says at the very end about peace and about rest. Because the last thing you think you'll find in unjust life or justice and just living suffering hurt is rest, right? Listen to what he says there at the very end. He says, listen, for once you were like sheep have gone astray. But now you have been returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. He's talking to people that are suffering, that are hurting, that are living in an unfair, unjust life. And he's reminding them who they are. You once were like sheep just wandering and scattered, but God's relentless, incredible, pursuing love chased you down and brought you to him. And now he is the perfect shepherd. The relationship of God as shepherd to the sheep is a really powerful one in Scripture because the shepherd is the perfect caretaker, both the disciplinarian and the love, the sort of the lover of the sheep, the protector, the garter the one that sets up boundaries, the one that feeds, the ones that gives rest to. And he said, once you were chasing your own path, which would have allowed you to do all those things, to fight, to be bitter, to be angry, to be vengeful, but that's not who you are. You've been rescued by God, by the incredible great shepherd. He has relentlessly pursued you and brought you back. And not only is he the great shepherd, but he is the overseer of your soul. In other words, find peace and rest in who you are. In the middle of difficult struggles and hurt and pain or injustice or living a life that's unfair or whatever it is, remember who you are. You were once a crazy, sinful, reckless person. And God has pursued you and brought you back and promised, as a shepherd does, to protect you and provide for you and care for you and lead you and nurture you and not let you die of those things, because he's the overseer of your soul. In other words, God is at work and overseeing something that is so much grander than just your temporary inconvenience, just the temporary moments of your unjust life, of that situation where it's not fair and life is hard. God is not cornered in by those tiny little boundaries, but he is more at work for the care and nurture of your soul. In other words, the person who you are, who you're becoming, and who you will be. God is not concerned just with your temporary struggle. But he is growing you in that struggle to be someone that models and reflects the love of Christ to the world. He has a purpose for your life. And even our suffering, as we've talked about here multiple times, can be used for his glory. Even our injustice can be ways that God's light is shown throughout the world. That our light and momentary sufferings, right, are earning for us a glory that outweighs all of those things. There is great rest and comfort in trusting the shepherd and overseer of your soul. If you believe those things to be true about God, then it changes the way that we see our current situations. If I believe that God is my shepherd and the overseer of my soul, then what am I really fighting for? What can man do to me? Nothing. I've got a shepherd that guards my soul, so you treat me as awful as you want to. And I'm gonna love you because my soul is safe and at peace and at rest. And that becomes the context in which we live and endure injustice. Because it is a respectful life, respectful life that honors God because we are mindfully aware of who He is and what His promises are. We follow the example of Jesus and we entrust ourselves to the God who judges justly and we find deep and real and true rest. And the God that is the overseer of your soul. That he is making you and shaping you into a person who will be like him. So whatever you're facing this week, whatever injustice, struggle may come, whatever banner you want to stand on or under, do it correctly. Do it in a way that honors the Lord. Do it in submission to him and not for the glory of yourself. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the moments just to open your word. To be able to share some prayer time together. To be able to deal so much, not so much with difficult text, but just the context of text. It's just sometimes really challenging because it goes against our nature. We've been taught to be fighters, to fight for ourselves, to write our own name. We're such, we guard our self image so closely and tightly. We manipulate it, actually, because we want people to see certain things. And so, God, when we're treated unjustly or unfairly, when we face those things or harsh situations, our go-to is to clear our name or fight for what we believe is right so that we might have victory. I just think that part of what you're sharing with these believers that are in this challenging context is just to trust you. That submission is built around this faithful and fearless trust of the Lord. It's not about not fighting for what's right. It's about not fighting for the selfish side of what's right. It's not about fighting for those that can't fight for themselves, but it's not about fighting to clear my own name. There's such a selfish side to that. What you call us to is something wholly different. We might trust you, be mindfully aware of you, follow the example of Jesus, and leave Leave vengeance and justice to you. Defeat our enemy and give him drink and take a deep breath and just find rest that you are the overseer of our soul. There is nothing in this world that man can do to me to strip that. And so, God, because I love you and I trust you, man can do nothing to me. Even in the most harsh and difficult circumstances, you are the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. That's who we are. No one can snatch us out of your hand. You are the protector and the leader and the guider, and we trust you. So Lord, as life opens up both barrels of unfairness, who cares? Bring it on. We will trust you, Jesus. We won't fight back to clear our own names. We won't cry and throw pity parties. We won't pout and kick dirt around and cry injustice. We'll just submit to you. And we'll find glory and joy and hope and purpose in every single moment, even the ones that are hard to swallow, as we follow the example of Jesus together. We love you, Lord. As we close our time this morning, I encourage you to just stand and let your heart be free before the Lord, believing that God is the shepherd and overseer of your soul, that he is the garter and protector of your life, and that he will make all things right. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's close our time in worship.